Praise the Lord. It's good to be here. I'd like to thank Brother and Sister Butcher for having us and the Swiles for having us. It's been a pleasure. It's been um, so nice to come back. It's been several years since Daniel and I have come here. I think Daniel said it's been six or seven years and so it's so nice to be back with friends, um, family, because that's what you are. And I really thank Brother Butcher for giving, uh, allowing me, giving me the opportunity to speak. And Brother Gavin, you've confirmed the word over that side because tonight we're going to talk about being real. We're going to talk about fakes and real people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for confirming your word. Lord, I thank you that you knew who was going to be here tonight and that you had a plan for this service. Lord, I pray that I would be a vessel that you can use here tonight. Lord, that you would accomplish what you desire in this place and in our hearts. We commit this service to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to try. Yep, this one. There we go. Okay. Jeremiah 18 verses 1 through 6. It's a very well-known scripture. And it says this, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. My title tonight is a question. Gone too far. And the question is this Are you for real? We all have an idea or or an image of what we'd like our real life to look like. Let's call it our ideal life. In your ideal life, maybe you'd be taller, skinnier, well-paid, you'd work from home and have overseas holidays every six months, you'd be married with kids, you'd own your own home, maybe you'd be the next brother Stone King. Maybe in your ideal life, You'd fast five days a week, pray 10 hours a day, manifest all nine fruits of the Spirit all of the time, you know, love, joy, peace, and operate in six of the spiritual gifts. But the reality is, for most of us, this is not the case. Maybe your ideal 2019 was meant to look like the top picture, a smooth ride from start to finish and then life happened and reality looks more like the second picture. I don't know about you but some days feel like the second picture. So what does it mean to be real? The dictionary defines real as actually existing as a thing or occurring in fact, not imagined or supposed not imitation or artificial, genuine. On the flip side, 
ideal means satisfying one's conception of what is perfect, most suitable, existing only in the imagination, desirable or perfect, but not likely to become a reality. The reality is that you can spot a fake a mile away. So why do we think God can't? If you're trying to build relationships with people, they want to know you're genuine, not fake. So the question becomes, why am I afraid to show you the real me? Why do I think you'll only accept the ideal version of me? Deep down inside of us, there's a fear that if the real me is exposed, people won't like me. Will others think less of me if they know more about me? What would they think if they knew I had anger issues or I'd never read the Bible all the way through? Being real means being vulnerable. And who likes to be vulnerable? Vulnerability involves letting our true selves be seen, which can be both risky and rewarding. Being vulnerable takes courage because it connects us to others. God has wired us for connection and giving us, given us a longing to be known and to know others. He wants us to live in a way that connects us to him and to one another. But we often thought that connection with self-protective shields that become barriers to healthy relationships, barriers that keep us from experiencing the intimacy that both we and God desire. Vulnerability takes courage because it opens us to the possibility of rejection. We feel ashamed of our flaws and try to hide and try to hide them because they we fear they make us unlovable. So they become our secrets. Vulnerability takes self-acceptance. The Bible tells us to know the truth and the truth will set us free. The truth that God who created us knows every messy and broken thing about us and still loves us and forgives us. Our flaws don't keep us from him. They draw us to him. Two Corinthians twelve nine says His grace is sufficient for you because his strength is made perfect in weakness. He accepts us in our weakness. Our vulnerability, admitting who we are with all our imperfections, makes us more compassionate with others who are also messy and broken. I want to be a person who invites vulnerability. I want to be a safe person. When we share our lives and challenges with honesty and vulnerability, others find ourselves in our, themselves in our stories. And they also find him because he is what's keeping me together. Vulnerability diminishes unhealthy competition and comparisons. Vulnerability normalizes failure as part of the human existence. When I think of vulnerability, I think of Peter and also of Judas. As humans, we are susceptible to failure. Both Peter and Judas had major spiritual 
and relational failures in the final days of Jesus' life. Judas handled failure in a terribly final way, by hanging himself. His failure marked his exit from the story. But Peter handled his failure differently. He appeared again with the disciples, declaring the plan of salvation to all who came to see and hear what was going on. If part of the human experience is failure, then we don't need to run away from it. Hanging around our family, friends or the church after our failures are exposed is hard. It must have been humiliating for Peter to rejoin the disciples after he carried out the denial Jesus predicted. But he did it anyway. He allowed himself to be vulnerable. Throughout scripture we see God using imperfect people for the sake of his mission. Why did Jesus choose the individuals he did? He didn't call the popular, the rich or successful to further his ministry, but rather the poor and the broken. Abraham was old Elijah was suicidal Joseph was abused Job went bankrupt Moses had a speech problem Gideon was afraid Samson was a womanizer Rahab was a prostitute The Samaritan woman was divorced Noah was a drunk Jeremiah was young Jacob was a cheat Jonah ran from God Naomi was a widow Martha worried about everything. Thomas was a doubter. Zacchaeus was small and money hungry. Timothy worried so much he had ulcers. The disciples, well, they fell asleep while praying. But what does Romans 8.28 tell us? And we know that all things work for good to those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. If you ever feel like you aren't good enough, Remember that Jesus used a bunch of flawed people to share hope to a flawed world. Jesus didn't call the equipped, he equipped the called. And no matter what you've been through in life, remember the same power that conquered the grave lives in you. There are many reasons why God shouldn't have called you, but he did. Satan sees our mistakes. God sees the lessons learned. He doesn't look at what you did 20 years ago. It's not even on his record. So there are lots of reasons why he shouldn't have called us. But if we are in love with him, if we hunger for him more than our next breath, he'll use us despite who we are, where we've been and what we look like. It's time to step out from behind our limitations and allow God to use us. When the Israelites were faced with a giant, Saul thought that the ideal person to fight Goliath was another soldier, not a teenager. David didn't see his size, age or experience as a limitation. He'd seen God use him in spite of his limitations in the past. Saul was so worried about the real David that he put his armour on him. 
But David recognised that God wasn't looking to use the ideal David. He wanted the real David. So David took the armour off and armed himself with five stones. When Goliath saw David, he saw the real David, a ruddy youth, seemingly inferior to him. What he failed to see was the Lord of hosts fighting for Israel. David's word were prophetic when he said, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that's exactly what happened. Ideally, a soldier would have fought Goliath, but the real David was enough because he was on the Lord's side. The Jews missed their Messiah because he wasn't born in ideal circumstances. Their ideal saviour would have been born in a palace with much fanfare. In contrast to the pomp and extravagance of Caesar's royal palace, Mary's firstborn was born under humble circumstances and placed in an animal feeding trough. Similarly, the ideal Mary would have been a princess, not an innocent, unmarried teenager. The thing is, Mary was real, and that's what made her available, a vessel fit for the master's use. You see, God's plan always transcends human weakness and limitation. Some 33 years after Jesus' birth, Matthew tells the story of his anointing for burial. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But with his, when his disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. The accounts of this story in Matthew and Mark don't name the woman who anointed Jesus' head, yet they mention that they were at the house of Simon the leper. Some commentary suggests that this is because the woman was of ill repute, a prostitute. Her act of vulnerability was very real and it made the disciples very uncomfortable, angry even. This woman had no idea how significant her act was. No doubt she wanted to run screaming from the room when the disciples started complaining about her. But Jesus acknowledged her very real act and told the disciples that her act would memorialise her forever. Her willingness to be reeled allowed her to be a vessel that would play a significant role in an even more significant story. Paul was not the ideal person to write three quarters of the New Testament. Paul was responsible for the death of many Christians. 
He watched by as they stoned Stephen. Surely the Holy Ghost could have inspired any number of men to write what Paul wrote, yet God used Paul. I wonder how many times people threw Paul's past in his face. He could have allowed his past to define or limit him, but he didn't. He knew God had called him, and so he pursued that calling, even if it meant swapping wealth and prestige for shipwrecks and beatings. In fact, if they had succeeded in taking Paul's life, he would have been okay with that because he wrote in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The real Paul allowed God to make him over. There is nothing that you have done in your life that God can't forgive. I think that's part of the reason why God used Paul to write the scriptures, the inspired word of God, to highlight to us that our mistakes don't matter when we repent of them and give them over to God. He can still mould us into something workable for his kingdom. This sermon came out of a uni lecture. My lecturer was talking about how people come to counselling because their real self doesn't align with their ideal self and in counselling they hope to find strategies to become their ideal self. I asked the question of my lecturer, but who says my real self isn't enough? You see, my real self may not be enough for you, but it's enough for God. As I approached my 30th birthday, just a couple of years ago, I didn't feel like I'd accomplished very much in my life. Sure, I was married to an amazing man and had two amazing children. We had a mortgage. Dan had a good job. But was I ticking enough boxes for people to think I was living the ideal life? The bigger question was, why did what other people thought of me matter? The only thing that really matters is what God thinks of me. And I've found that he wants the real me. He knows I'm not perfect and that I continue to make mistakes. But he's okay with that because he's still working on me. He's moulding me and making me, but he does it gently and lovingly. He says, you want to pray 10 hours a day? How about we start with half an hour? You want to portray all nine fruits of the Spirit? How about we focus on being gentle? Our opening scripture talked about the potter working on a vessel. The vessel was marred, but he didn't throw it away. He didn't discard it and start on a different vessel. Instead, he made it into another vessel as it seemed good to him. For some of you here, it's time to lose the facade. God sees straight through it anyway. You might have us fooled, but you can't fool God. God wants you to be real because he can work with real. The good news is, if you lose the facade and ask him to make you over, he will. You might be in the potter's house, but you're not on the wheel. It's time to get back on the potter's wheel and allow him to mould and make you into what he wants you to be. His version is going to be better than your version of you.
You thought he wanted a vessel with no cracks, no imperfections, a vase to hold a beautiful bouquet of flowers. But his plan was for you to be a jug, something that can be filled but can also flow into others. He wants to fashion you into something that is far more beautiful, beautiful than you could imagine. He has a plan for your life that is so far above what you could ever think, but you've got to let him make you over. He's not going to force you onto the wheel. For others here tonight, you feel real broken and you don't think God can use your brokenness, but he specialises in brokenness. You don't need to fear. You can trust him. He said that tonight too. You don't need to be afraid of him making you over. He's so gentle about it. No one knew Jesus' body needed to be anointed for burial and he used an unlikely source for that. Your brokenness has released a fragrance and tonight he's saying, come and pour that fragrance on me. I have a purpose for that fragrance. He wants to take your brokenness and use it for his glory. The Japanese have a centuries-old art of fixing broken pottery with a special glue dusted with powdered gold, silver or platinum. Beautiful seams of gold glint in the cracks of the ceramic ware, giving a unique appearance to the piece. The repair method celebrates each artifact's unique history by emphasising its fractures and breaks instead of hiding or disguising them, often making the repaired piece even more beautiful and more valuable than the original, revitalising it with new life. Their philosophy is that there is beauty in the flawed or imperfect. Not only is there no attempt to hide the damage, but the repair is literally illuminated. Maybe you're the vessel that God intended you to be, but you've sustained a couple of breaks and now you feel worthless. You don't see how the potter can put you back together. But he has something far costlier than gold, silver or platinum to repair you with. His blood flows into those cracks and holds the pieces together. You see, there's an anointing that comes out of being broken. Through that brokenness, he wants to take you deeper with him than you've ever been before. He's not done with you just because you've sustained a crack somewhere along the way. He wants to heal you, to repair you and make you more beautiful than you've ever been. Then there are those in here that God has placed a calling on your life but you're believing the lie that God can't use you because you're not perfect and you don't have it all together. But as I said earlier, he doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. John says, you have not chosen me but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Remember, he didn't choose, you didn't choose him. He chose you. He wants you to bring forth fruit. 
Maybe he's called you to preach, but you've never preached a sermon in your life. That's okay. Go home and study his word. As he gives you messages or ideas for messages, write them down. Preach them to yourself in the shower. When there's an opportunity to testify, share the scripture you've been studying. He will bring about opportunities for you to preach to others as you grow and develop. If you're serious about ministry, then be prepared to do whatever is asked of you, no matter how small or insignificant the job may be. There are even people here that God has called to supernatural ministries. When you preach the word, he wants to open deaf ears and cause limbs to grow, but you can't fake that kind of ministry. You need to be real. That ministry isn't going to happen magically. It's going to take you being real and acknowledging it's not about you and it's all about him. It's not going to come just from fasting the night before you preach. It's going to come through consecration and time spent on the potter's wheel. He wants to know that he can trust you with that kind of ministry. A supernatural ministry will mark you. The enemy will put a target on your back. That kind of ministry becomes a lifestyle not just a switch that you can turn on and off when you desire. Will you let him remove your imperfections? Will you submit to the potter's training school? He needs you to be real. The devil can spot a fake a mile away, so if you're going to get involved in the supernatural, then you'd better be the real deal. Stand with me, please. time to surrender to his call to his will arms wide open holding nothing back will you be real with him tonight will you allow him to make you over will you lay down the facade and give him your life just as you are he wants to make something beautiful out of your brokenness Come and surrender that brokenness to him. Will you come and get back on the potter's wheel tonight? Will you let him mould you into something new? Because he has great plans for your life. Come and pray.